Hello, Fellowship Bible. We're the Henderson family. We're reading this morning our passage from Luke, chapter 13, verse 10 through 21. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which, to, in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid three measures of flowers until it was all leavened. Hey, good morning, church. Hope you guys are... Uh encouraged by our time of worship and our time of prayer. It was, uh, it was just so great to be thinking about certainly one another, but certainly thinking about our city and what God is doing in and through all of us. Um, if you have been around fellowship for any length of time, you've probably heard the phrase, um, the Christian life is a connected life. And that's really how we do think about it. We think about all the different ways that God has taken what was separated or broken and uh, reconnected it, certainly beginning with him, but with each other and uh, with his mission. Um, one of the things that we've been focusing on over the last several months, we kicked it off actually in September, was one of those connections, and that is connecting backward with our story. And we talked about story being a, a, a real, an enormous thing. It's not just like my personal story, but it's uh, the story of my family. It's the story of my church. It's the story of the church. It's the story of all of redemptive history. It's this enormous cosmic story of God's redemptive plan. We want to connect backward with all of that. And as we're doing that, one of the things that happens is we get a, a greater grasp of our own story, the, the significance of it, the, the goodness of it, but also uh, we become sort of more nimble with it. Like we're able to use our story for God's purposes as we relate to the people around us. So this morning, as we hit uh, another part of chapter 13, we're going to work on connecting backward with our story by entering into the story of a woman that met Jesus. Let me turn you back to uh, verse 10 
read along with me here. It says, now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Uh, I like to think of this woman as bent and bound. And she is going to become a great picture for all of us. Um, You know, it just refers to her as a woman. Let's call her Jane. I'm just going to refer to her as Jane as we make our our way through this story. Um, Physically, she is disabled. It says she is bent double. Like you need to visually imagine this woman bent over and unable to raise herself. She makes her way around everywhere she goes like this. So she is disabled, disfigured, unable to stand straight. And this hasn't been just for the last couple of months or maybe a year or two. This is 18 years. Imagine that. Imagine the pain. Imagine the confusion. Imagine the difficulty. Now, Jane's a woman. Women weren't treated very well in that day. So she's got that going against her. Now she's disfigured, she's disabled. She's probably dismissed, perhaps even mocked. And not just outside the people of God, probably inside the people of God. Do you guys remember uh, a couple of weeks ago as we were looking at the first part of chapter 13, we, uh, there was an assumption of that day. And, and I don't know if you remember what it was. It was that bad things happen to bad people. That's what they believed. And so honestly, every time sweet Jane made her way to the synagogue, and we are told later in this chapter that she was a daughter of Abraham. So she's a Jew. She probably comes to synagogue regularly. And just imagine, every single Saturday, she hobbles in, bent over, unable to look anyone in the eye. And, and many of them perhaps look at her and think, gosh, I guess she got what she deserved. Just imagine the, the heartbreak of that. Now, it does say that her disability wasn't only physical, it was spiritual. She was demonically oppressed. We learn in verse 16 Jesus says she was bound by Satan. I I can't think of a harder way of life. But yet Jane keeps coming to the synagogue week after week after week. Now, her story invites us, you and me, to consider our own disabilities, our own things that hold us captive and and that's what I wonder is what what's your prison what holds you captive in what ways are you bound second uh, peter 2:19 says for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved so think about it for a moment maybe attitudes actions ways that you navigate life ways that you relate to the people around you as I was reading about Jane and then I started to think about my own story, um, 
I have experienced bondage or captivity to a number of things. Anger, fear, pride, lust, profanity, gluttony, drugs and alcohol, self-indulgence of all kinds. Like all of that is a part of my story. And it's not all true of me today. And certainly, I look to those things, those worldly things, I look less to those now than I did decades ago. But man, they're tempting, aren't they? It's so easy to go to these things that are around us that seem like they'll satisfy, only to find again and again that they never do. But... but Peter says, to whatever overcomes us, that's what we're enslaved to. That's our captivity. So make a a mental note of what yours might be. Let's get back to Jane. She's at the synagogue with Jesus on the Sabbath. So let me highlight a couple of those things there. She's in the synagogue. Now, this isn't the temple. There's only one temple. It's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Um, But over time, the Jews began to establish similar to what we would understand as our churches, like these little gathering places for the Jews to get around God's word, live in community, to practice the rituals outlined in the Old Testament. So this is a synagogue, not the temple, similar to churches. They're meeting on the Sabbath. That is the last day of the week, so Saturday, and that was to reflect or emulate the creation story of God working for six days and resting on the seventh day, on Saturday. That was a day when God's people um, were to rest, they were to renew, they were to worship, they were to live in community with one another and celebrate the goodness of God and trust Him by putting aside those things that they were giving themselves to in order to invite him to do what only he could do. So they're in the synagogue. It's on the Sabbath. Now, what about Jesus? Now, they wouldn't necessarily have had all this in their minds right in the moment, but we do because we've been studying the book of Luke together for several months now. So I want to take you back to a couple of things that are important for us to remember about Jesus as he is engaging Jane In a synagogue on the Sabbath, Luke 4, 18 through 19 says this. This was when Jesus was essentially inaugurating his ministry and introducing himself to the people of God. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's quoting Isaiah 61. Because he, the Lord, has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All in all, we take away from that, that God wants to set his people free. And isn't that great news for Jane, even though she doesn't know it yet? Jesus is teaching, but that's who's teaching. Then in Luke 6, 5, we're told that uh, Jesus 
under the scrutiny of the religious leaders in another place at another time, he declared to them, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. That means if anybody knows what the Sabbath is for, if anyone knows what should and shouldn't be done on the Sabbath, he's the one. Two great things to know about Jesus as we get further into Jane's story. So Jesus is teaching. He is welcomed as a traveling rabbi. There's nothing special about this location. We're just told it's one of the synagogues, except there's one thing. Jane is there, bent and bound. Look at verse 12. When Jesus saw her, and I just, like, I don't want to rush past this. I, I want you to think about that moment. Jesus is up doing something similar to what I'm doing right now, and there's a crowd of people And maybe just out of the corner of his eye, he notices Jane hobbling in, disabled, disfigured, oppressed, bound. And he called her over. That must have been terrifying. (laughs) Probably nobody ever spoke to Jane. Certainly nobody ever called her over and wanted to engage in any kind of conversation with her. But Jesus called her over and then he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. I mean, this is, this is the gospel. Look at that. Jesus, the teacher, the Lord of the Sabbath, God incarnate, he saw her. He called her over. And then he spoke words to her that she must have wanted to hear every day for 18 years. And then it must have terrified her to actually hear those words and then to wonder, I wonder is anything going to change? Am I still going to be stuck in this condition? Who is this guy and can he do anything for me? He says, woman, you are freed. That's good news. And then Jesus, it says he laid his hands on her. And, and just imagine the, the humility. This is a rabbi. This is a leader. This is someone who's held in high esteem. And it's, he, he condescends. He meets her in her place of brokenness. He lays her hand on her. There's great humility there. And there's great identification with her. It, he's literally saying physically, I'm with you. In your brokenness. And it says as he touched her immediately, she was made straight. I love that phrase. (laughs) Um, It's in the passive voice, which means Jane didn't straighten up. I like that. It's like, it wasn't, I just remember growing up as a kid, if I ever got out of line, if I ever did something wrong, you know, somebody somewhere bigger than me would just say, hey, you straighten up. 
But that's not what happens here. Literally, she's done nothing at this point except come to Jesus when he called. He speaks those words. He lays his hand on her and she is made straight. She's made straight. Can you imagine what that must have looked like and felt like when she stood tall and looked around in a way she hadn't in 18 years? Her response says she glorified God. What a great picture of the gospel. There's a statement in John 8, 36 that it just complements this story so well. Uh, It says this, If the Son sets you free, as he did with this woman, you will be free indeed. Two questions I want to ask you to consider before we move on. First of all, has the Son set you free? Have you ever come to a recognition of your own captivity? Have you ever come to a recognition of your own inability to do anything about it? Have you ever come to the understanding that you will one day be before a holy God? And if you're trusting in yourself to deal with the separation that's there, you're in trouble. But if you will simply ask him to do for you what you can't do for yourself, you will be free, forgiven, made righteous, and brought into relationship with God. So some of you, perhaps the Son has never set you free. Maybe today is that day. Secondly, if there is a day like that in your story, are you living free or not? See, uh, the Son setting us free doesn't force us to live free every day thereafter. We get an opportunity. See, before, we just live as captives. That's just the way life is. But when we are set free, we now have the option, sin, death, the devil, everything. None of that has power over us except that which we give to it. So every day we get to choose to live free or not. That's actually the message of Galatians 5.1. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. That's the volition. That's the choice. That's the intentionality around living out what is true of us, our freedom. Goes on to say, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That must mean that we can. More on that a little bit later. Let me introduce you to the slave trader in the story. Verse 14 says, but the ruler of the synagogue, there he is, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, he said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now, I just, like, take that in for a second. (laughs) Surely that guy has seen Jane come and go countless times for 18 years. I don't know how long he's been the ruler, but he knows who she is. He knows her condition. 
He's probably one of those guys that thinks bad things happen to bad people. And yet he has seen this rabbi come in and change everything for her. Why wouldn't that guy, more than any other guy, because supposedly he knows God, why wouldn't he be doing backflips, celebrating Jane is free? Instead, he becomes indignant. Literally, it's intense displeasure. Think of being furious or enraged. There's no joy, there's no awe, there's no celebration. He's not excited for Jane or anybody else. He's just mad. And what's he mad about? He loosely quotes Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20, which outlined the stipulations for the Sabbath, particularly not working on the Sabbath. So that's where he says there are six days in which work ought to be done, not on the seventh. But then he misapplies those texts by including with that healing and helping as if that's work. To paraphrase his scolding of the crowd, and by the way, he doesn't talk directly to Jesus. He just uh, points his attention to the crowd. Don't violate the Sabbath by seeking God's intervention for your problems on Saturday. We got six other days for that. (laughs) Just let us do our religious thing here. Don't interrupt. Well, the Lord answered. And it's interesting, in uh, in verse 15, I'm not certain that Jesus was referred to this way other than when he referred to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. But Luke, narrating this story, says, then the Lord answered him. (laughs) Just making it clear to everybody, this is God talking. And uh, this ruler is going to be in trouble. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Notice it's plural, not singular. So he's not only talking to the ruler, but he recognizes that the ruler and his cronies, the slave trader and his crew, they're all out of line. There was this uh, practice. So there was the Old Testament law. There were regulations that were applied to the Sabbath. Now, here's what the rulers would do, the rulers of the synagogues, the rulers of Israel. They would take God's law and then they would write other laws. And those other laws were intended to keep anybody from getting anywhere near breaking God's law. They thought, you know, why would we ever trust people to just obey what God has said? We're going to We're going to hem them in. We're going to pull it back further away from the line of disobedience because surely they can't obey all by themselves. And we're going to set up a new set of laws and we're going to do it to protect them. Nothing could be further from the truth. They made their own rules basically to uh, keep things under control. Um, what was interesting, though, is those rules were uh, very accommodating for those who were in charge. Uh, 
Look at uh, what Jesus says to them after outing them as hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? See, God's word never said you can't water or feed your livestock. It just said don't work on the Sabbath. And it just makes sense. Well, why wouldn't you take care of your animals on the Sabbath? But they needed to write a law that specified, here's what you can do for the good of your animal. And they specified how far you could go and all the details. But they put that in there for themselves. Jesus goes on to ask then in verse 16. So if that's true, if there's stipulations for you to take care of your animals, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, shouldn't she be loosed from his bond on the Sabbath day? Wouldn't today be a great day for a woman to be set free? It's like he's asking, what kind of spiritual leader places a greater priority on their livestock than they do on God's children, God's people? They used the law to enslave the very people God gave the law to protect. In Mark 2, 27, it says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the law isn't the point. The people are the point. The law is meant to protect, to to nourish, to encourage. One commentator said that the Sabbath was meant to be a boon to man, not a burden. Not a day taken from man, but given to him for his benefit. That's why God gave them the Sabbath. Here's a great principle to take away, I think, from the exposure of legalism that we see here. Man's best rules don't begin to compare with God's great love. Man's best rules, the best stuff that you and I can come up with for keeping everything in line will never compare with God's love. So there were two reactions, verse 17. As Jesus said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. Other Uh, translations say they were humiliated and all the people on the other hand rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him so you've got god honoring joy coming from the woman and the crowd and self-righteous contempt coming from these religious leaders and in the midst of these two reactions what we see are two kingdoms in conflict Jesus was very clear. He was ushering in a kingdom, said the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember, repent, turn away from going your own direction, turn toward God, go after him. He's your only hope. They had a a gross misunderstanding of what this kingdom was going to be like. And so Jesus tells two parables. That's how this passage ends that are intended to help us understand the true nature of God's kingdom. In verse 18, he said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Listen up. 
And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. That's what the kingdom of God is like. But not only that, verse 20, he again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So these leaders, they had some idea about a kingdom that was coming. And that kingdom in their minds basically consisted of two things. One was it was going to overturn Rome and put them in power. And that's the second thing is they get to be in power. They get to control. They get to rule the world. That's what they're interested in. They're not really thinking about what God might want to do with his kingdom. They are thinking about themselves and they are grossly confused. Theirs was a do-it-yourself kingdom. And God was sort of like Home Depot or Lowe's. You know, they just go to him when they need supplies. The Israelites who ascribe to this perspective, they're self-righteous. They believe that they're already good because they're children of Abraham. And God is sort of obligated to give them what they need. They, they think that they actually have a better plan than God does about how this whole kingdom thing ought to work. Echoing back to verses six through nine in chapter 13, we covered that a while back. They were fruitless fig trees. Remember the fig tree that was planted and it wasn't bearing fruit and the owner wanted to cut it down and the vine dresser said, hey, give it another year. Let me work on the roots. They were fruitless fig trees. They had become legalistic slave traders when they should have been grace-filled freedom fighters. That was their role in caring for God's people. So here with these parables, Jesus is signaling a shift away from figs to mustard. Um, In the grand scheme of things, and again, we know this because we're looking backward at the story of God's redemptive plan in the church, we're seeing that there was a shift toward Gentiles. And this mustard tree that grows up and has branches where birds can fly in, that's actually a picture throughout the Old Testament that indicated the blessing that was told to Abraham about your, you'll have a nation come out of your family and that nation will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth. You'll be a blessing. This is that picture of blessing, except it's not a fig tree. It's a mustard tree. Now, that's not a permanent thing. Romans 9 through 11 talk about there's a future for Israel. So, so yes, that is the case. We believe that. But in this moment, the church is going to spread. It's going to start small. And, and think about the church, how it started. Twelve men, very unlikely. We're told they were uneducated, very common, ordinary guys. But Jesus chose them, discipled them for three years, and then entrusted the church to them. And it has spread, hasn't it? 
Think about how the church has spread from 12 to billions. Make no mistake, regardless of how small God's kingdom may appear to you, and I think that might have been what those religious leaders thought is, this Jesus and this little piddly kingdom that he's talking about, it's, it's so small and insignificant. It's so obscure. How could that possibly not only overturn Rome, but take over the whole world? How could it ever do that? Their small minds were so limited. Their faith was so vacant. They missed what God was doing. No matter how small God's kingdom may appear to you or to me in our own lives or the places where we are, it is more magnificent, more spectacular, more far-reaching than you or I could ever imagine. I want to finish by getting back to this story that we're invited to enter and learn from. And as I think about this woman, I wonder what became of Jane after that day. She was seeking God in the synagogue week after week, and she ran into Jesus. She came to him when he called, and she was delivered, restored, made straight. She immediately began to do the one thing that she and all of us were created to do, glorify God. She began to do that. And so I wonder if she continued to live free after she was set free. And honestly, that's the question that I continue to ask myself and I offer to you today. Have you been set free? Remember, that's one of the questions we asked earlier. And if you have been set free, are you living that way? Is your life characterized by this Reckless abandonment to God, that's freedom. Uh, a, a gladness about his word and even his rules and restrictions that he might offer that, that are supposed to help us flourish in life. I'll remind you of Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in that freedom. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. One of the greatest encouragements I honestly have ever received in my own journey of faith is those words I said earlier from John 8, 36. And I want to leave you with this. And I want to encourage you to talk together about what this means for you as you face those things that might keep you captive. John 8, 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I want you to take a moment again, and uh, as we think about that question, so what? Like, how would we want to respond to Jane's story, to the story of the church, to the story of our church, to the story of God's redemptive plan? I want you to, to 
prayerfully just invite God to show you. First of all, whether or not you've been set free. Secondly, what it might be in your life that's still holding you captive. And then ask God to show you how you might apply the freedom that you possess in Christ. Apply that to that area. And I know this. I know that we can't do that apart from God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. So prayerfully ask him now. How might you respond to the freedom that you have in Christ? Take just a moment and then I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, so grateful that your word preserves stories like this. This sweet woman, bent and bound, but freed by you, by grace, by the power of God. Thank you for that picture, Lord. Help us to uh, apply that in our own stories. And help us encourage one another with this beautiful idea of freedom that we do get from your word. Thank you, Father. Thank you for loving us so graciously. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, church, I want to mention one quick thing as we uh, finish up. I actually want to talk to the guys real quickly. Um, You know, I know we're feeling separated and isolated and distanced and all of that. Um, We're going to, you know, we're going to start connecting in ways that uh, our government says is appropriate. So uh, know that that is something that we're committed to. We have a men's fellowship coming up. And we're like right on the edge here. Um, It was scheduled for April 30th through May 2nd. We lost the 30th because of the restrictions, but we literally still have the first and second. It's It's an overnight camping trip to Tim's Ford Lake. We've got a few guys registered. So I just wanna put that out. Men, if you wanna get away for an overnight on May 1st, start off the month of May, Um, go to Realm, look for the event, Forge Men's Fellowship, and register there. We're going to have a great time. It's going to be super cash. We'll we'll stay six feet apart, but but we'll um, enjoy a fire, enjoy some good food. It'll be a blast. So uh, if you're interested in that, get registered. Otherwise, have an awesome week with with your family, and uh, we'll see you next Sunday.